Hey now, and welcome to the City Off Campus podcast with your two favorite hosts, Sammy Sommerfeld and Jack McFarland. We've got a special guest today. We've got former Chicago Bears long snapper Patrick Manley on the show today. How's everything going with you? Everything's good, man. The Bears are five and one. It makes it a lot easier to talk about back in Chicago, and uh, life is good, man. I mean, other, other than what we're going through with this darn COVID stuff, I, mean, I can't complain. Yeah, definitely. So my first question for you is, how did you start playing long snapper and what drew you to the position? Yeah, okay. So I, had a, I have a brother who's five years older and uh, he played football at Notre Dame from 1988 to 1992. And I was, I kind of took a hiatus off of football or away from football my seventh and no, sixth and seventh grade year. So he came back that summer going into his sophomore year. And it was about him. He wanted to learn how to long snap because at Notre Dame that time, they just came off the national championship year in 1988. They had a bunch of great players there. And he was like, all right, if I can learn how to long snap, maybe I can get on the field a little quicker. So we were out in the front yard, you know, working with my brother Bernard of how to long snap. And he's like, all right, here, here, kid, brother, you try to do this thing. And I did. I grabbed the ball and just kind of turned, you know, turned upside down and snapped it back there. And he looked at me like, that's pretty good. So from then on, I just took kind of pride in wanting to be the long snapper for the eighth grade year, ninth grade year, 10th grade year and on. But uh, I owe a lot to my brother who, who kind of brought it to me. And a neat story behind it is uh, at my high school, uh, a bunch of the Atlanta Falcons coaches, kids went to our high school. So there wasn't much information out there about how to long snap. So Rod Dauhauer, I think was the offensive coordinator or quarterback's coach or whatever he was with the Falcons at the time. His son went to Marist, my high school in Atlanta. And um, gave us a pamphlet of like how to long snap. It was literally like two pages, kind of like how to grip it, just the basics. And that's how I, how I learned it. And then just, you know, like I said, took pride in wanting to do it every year thereafter. And it turned into, you know, what it did with the Bears. And, you know, I went to Duke University. It was an offensive lineman, defensive lineman slash one of those big, bigger athletes. And then had to do it my freshman year because this fifth year senior got hurt. And um, I just, you know, took a lot of pride in it and luckily got uh, got drafted for it. Something I'm sure you figured out relatively quickly while being a long snapper is it's a lot like being an ump in the MLB. If you do your job, nobody really knows your name. But if you, if you screw <laughs> up, everybody knows it, your man. name. That's a good way. I'm going to use that when I'm stealing that one from you. <laughs> so what kind of pressure was that for you at the beginning of your long snapping career? And how did that pressure change throughout the entirety of your professional career? Um, you know, what's weird is people, I, mean, I get to ask that question. I think it's one thing I embraced it. Like I embraced the pressure. I, I enjoyed trying to be perfect. Um, and being, you can't be exactly perfect. You know, we're doing our zoom call here. So drawing a box, it's like trying to hit the box. I try to hit a big box to make my perfect a little bit bigger, you know, within the, the punters, you know, framework or, you know, from knees to knees to nipples, like I said, that's, it was kind of my perfect, but I just kind of embraced that that role. I embraced wanting to be that guy. And, and, and if I missed, and if I was off for a little bit, I just was like, all right, I've got to make the next 10 to 11 to 12 perfect again. But that's just something I embraced and enjoyed doing and, and, and didn't mind not being noticed. That mean, meant you do you were doing your job, like you said. So I had no problem with that. And I'm sure doing the whole not getting noticed thing came secondhand with being an offensive lineman. Nobody really ever <laughs> says anything good about them unless they mess up. That, that's true. That's a good way to put it. We just had Bob Wiley on the, uh, you know, I do the, the radio show back in Chicago. Bob Wiley was the old offensive line coach. And he came up with the idea of the mushroom club. That's what O-linemen are, O-line coaches. You know, like, they just put them in the dark. Nobody cares about them. And that's kind of what a long snapper is. And a lineman are you just, you're, you're a mushroom. You know, that's, 
And, and, and that's something you just embrace as, a, as, a, as an O-lineman. You're your unit of a five people as an O-lineman. As a long snapper, you're your own unit as one, but you just you got to embrace it and enjoy it. My next question for you is what was the best or most meaningful snap you played in the NFL? That's a good one. I mean, the most meaningful would have been my first one against the Jacksonville Jaguars just because I made the NFL, was able to wear, you know, a Bears uniform in a regular season game at home. Um, but, I, I, you know, there's the, any game-winning kick was meaningful. You know, all the ones that Robbie made were very meaningful. I think the one we beat Seattle was was very meaningful, but that wasn't my best snap, but Robbie made the kick. Um, the other ones, I mean, I'm, it's, it's hard to say one, but, I, okay, the most meaningful one, I'll just make it simple, was the first one in the NFL against the Jacksonville Jaguars in 1998. Well, so, what do you remember from that? Well, I'll give you a little story on that one, too, because I remember looking at Todd Sauerbrunn, who was the punter, and thinking, holy shit. <laughs> You know, I'm in the NFL and I'm doing this. This is amazing. And it's, it was kind of neat that I took that just split second to, to put myself in that situation and realize where I was. So when you were coming in as a rookie long snapper, what were your expectations or goals starting your career? And at that point in time, where did you think your career was going to go? <laughs> My wife and I talk about this all the time. Uh, let me give you a, a before that story. So I, I, I met my wife in college and was lucky enough to get drafted, but we dated, started dating kind of my senior year. And she's like, what is a long snapper? And I was telling her I did that as well as playing offensive line. And then I told her, I have a chance to go play in the NFL as a long snapper. And her thing was, that's a job. <laughs> <laughs> so she couldn't believe it. Um, so my, my, it started out with just, just wanting to make the pros. You know, I got drafted. I just wanted to make the team. Um, oh, you sound like a three-year rookie deal. I just wanted to play the first year and then see where it took me. I was hoping to get, you know, it's kind of a head start in life with the, uh, with the earning curve, with making NFL money early on. And then um, I didn't know it was going to last 16 years. I think everybody has a goal. Hey, I would love to play double digits. And that kind of became maybe a little bit of a reality in my mind, maybe after, or I guess it did when I signed my second contract after my third year and then not knowing it would go into 16 years. I never dreamt that, but uh, that was my thinking going to the NFL and with, with the job of, of being a long snapper that surprised my wife. <laughs> so you talk about playing 16 years in the NFL. So I want to ask you about a specific day in your career, which is September 27th, 2010, when you beat Steve McMichael's mm -hmm. um, most games played record. Yes. Yes. What did that mean for you? you know, as a long, you know, cause it's not many times you see a long snapper breaking, you know, franchise records. So what did something like that mean to you during that period of time? Well, first off, that, that, that was my wife's birthday. So I do remember wow. that. <laughs> um, but it was something, so maybe I'll make this a lot, try to shorten up the story, but as a player pregame, we would always get the, like the game day program in our locker. And I'd always sit there and open it up and you just read the same stuff over and over the bears records longevity records you know walter payton's records all that stuff and i'm like i will never ever be in this book for any of these things and then i'm like wait a second longevity that's the only thing i could ever beat so as it got closer into that day i mean as it got closer i was like wait a minute i could play 192 games and beat steven michael's record or whatever it was 91 whatever it was um and when that happened it was just it was a dream come true it was just I was like, all right, I'm going to make the Bears record book. My mom and dad or my dad was in town, my brother and all everybody. Um, but that was just one where I was like, I did 
something I didn't think I would ever do. And it was a pretty cool moment. Speaking of dreaming, dreams come true. Uh, it feels like Devin Hester is kind of a dream come true for the Chicago mm-hmm. Bears. How'd the vibe in the special team meetings change once he came onto the scene? And what were they like beforehand and after he was in those meetings? Well, we were always pretty good. We were always very competitive. We always kind of did the right thing. Dave Tobe was a great coach, Mike Sweatman before, and Keith Armstrong. But I just remember seeing Devin Hester when he got on the practice field for the first time. And, you know, you're not doing live tackling. So he's catching the ball. He's returning it, just kind of wiggling through. And then he'll get to a sideline and then somebody will try to, t- you know, will chase him and try to take an angle. And when he put on the afterburner and just the angle went away, it was gone. I was like, holy cow, this guy is that fast. And I think all of us saw that and we're like, all right, this guy is special. He's dynamic. And what I loved about him, guys, he worked his butt off on, you know, just the little things of being able to catch the perfect ball from a kickoff to a punt and um, watch. He just, he was a great pro, but we knew once we got him, we had something special and guys wanted to be on the field when he was on the field. So guys were trying to be on the punt return team. Guys were trying to get on the kickoff return team. Charles Tillman, if you guys starting corner should be a future hall of famer. He is, he, I think was the left corner on the punt punt return team. Cause he always wanted to be out there with, with Devin. And that says a lot for a starting corner that wanted to be out there. I think it does say a lot because you see a lot of Devin's touchdowns and you see Erlacher, Briggs, Tillman, Hillenmeyer, all those guys leading the way for him because just yeah. being on the field with someone like that has got to be, without a doubt, the most fun. Mm-hmm. Another guy you were on the field with that was an absolute legend, you mentioned earlier, Robbie Gold. Mm-hmm. At what moment did you realize that Robbie was the real deal? Because you've been on the record and saying when he came in, he was raw, but you could see something. At what point did you realize that Robbie was going to be the real deal like he is today? I, I can't recall the day or time, but I think the story I've told about him being raw when he came in with the seven kickers for the Tuesday tryout, the ball just came different off his foot. You know, it hit a little higher, it spun a little better, um, but he was still raw from, from, from college. And there's no specific day I can give you, but I just know that guy and how hard he worked. That's why he is as good as he is now. I think it's just that work ethic, that raw ability, and how much he cares about his craft is, is, is why he is so good. But I can't remember the specific day or time like that, but it just, it, it, it took a little time and cultivated, but um, you know, he started to hit some kicks, but it, and then, it, well, see, that's the thing with kickers. It just, you make one, you make another, you make it, it takes some time to kind of build that resume. And that's what Robbie did. And he kept making bigger kick after bigger kick. Um, you just mentioned, I'm going to bounce around a little because this is so damn cool. Oh, no worries, man. So <laughs> you, you mentioned Devin Hester and obviously opening up all the possibilities for the special teams. Uh, one place specifically that I wanted to touch on was the reverse that he and Johnny Knox pulled off against Green Bay. <clears throat> Who's, was it Coach Tobb's idea or was it their idea to kind of have that reverse in place? Because no, it was so perfect. It, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a reverse. So well, it was a it was. fake reverse, wasn't fa- it? Yes. No, this is what it was. So the punter for Green Bay at that time, I forgot who it was. It was a Tim Mastay, I think. So when you're in the plus 50 area, which means the ball is like beyond the 50 and they're going to kick it close to the goal line. He did that pooch kick, that end over end, like soccer, not soccer style kick, the flip flop kick, they kind of call it. And he did it 100% to the left, always to the left, his left, the return team's right. Well, he just, Dave Tobe came up with this and all right, I'm going to put Johnny Knox in as the, uh, the corner on the punt return team's right side which means the kick is going to go to him. He's going to have Devin sprint to the opposite side of the field. So Devin went left. So everybody, you know, they're all, they're all week, all they're thinking about cover Devin, cover Devin, cover Devin. 
not knowing that Tim Mastay's plus 20 or plus 50 kick is always going to go left. So Devin breaks the other way. Johnny Knox runs down there, tracks the ball. That was the hardest thing to do. And the crazy thing was Johnny did it great all during the week when we were practicing for it. So you knew you were comfortable with him doing it. Um, so that's how it came about. It was Devin running to the other side. I'm telling you all 11, well, all 10, except the punter ran, I mean, past the halfway point of the field to go towards Devin. Johnny Knox goes down there and catches it. And then they called a horrible penalty on, um, on Corey Graham. That was just horrible. It was wrong. And it's just too bad. It didn't, it worked, you know, he got to the end zone, but it wasn't a touchdown, unfortunately. So you talked about a little earlier about how all these players, defensive players wanted to be on special teams with, you know, having a coach like Dave Tobe, who now is super <laughs> successful in Kansas city. Um, you know, you had a special teams room of you, Robbie gold, Brad Maynard, you know, Hester. So what was it like to be in that unit? Oh man, he, I was just telling the story the other day that because we were talking on the pre and post game on the score about Matt Nagy's comments about these current bears of like, he's still hard on this offense saying you're not playing good enough. Well, Dave Tobe was that way all the time. He was always hard on us. And the story I was telling the other day on the radio was that we would have a game where Devin would return a kickoff for a or a punt return for a touchdown. Brad Maynard would net 43 yards. Robbie would go three for three on field goals. And Dave Tobe would still coach you up hard every little detail and we'd all look at each other in the meetings like come on coach we just kicked their ass on special teams take it easy but he would not do it and that's just kind of the way the room was and we embraced it and we you know respected coach Tobe and the way he coached and knew how good he was just like that example I gave you of, of dialing up that play for Johnny Knox but uh, we had a really special room where everybody cared every everybody wanted to play with Devin and every we wanted to be the best Dave Tobe had a ranking system um, I guess it was Rick Gosling, who's the Dallas, uh, Dallas, whatever the Dallas paper is, he would put out the rankings every year and Dave Tobe figured out how he did the rankings. So every week we know where we ranked within all 32 teams. And our goal was to be top five, at least throughout the year. And at the end of the year, we want to be number one. And we ended up being that a couple of times with Dave. Yeah, that's really cool. So when you started off with the Bears, you had as your head coach, Dick Duran, and then Lovey came after. Mm -hmm. what was oh, I, would, I started Wanstad. Oh, Wanstat. Oh, wow. Oh, Wanstat was my rookie year. Yeah, I had one year of Wanstat. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so that makes it even more interesting now. So uh -huh. with guys like Wanstat and Jerron and then transitioning to the mm -hmm. culture that Lovey built, what was the biggest difference you saw in the shift of culture? Because you had, you know, Erlocker and some of those early guys mm -hmm. on the team who were there for the transition. So what kind of did you see shift? Yeah, no, it's not, it, it, you're right, because the wand stat was my rookie year, and you just keep your mouth and eyes open. You keep your mouth shut and your eyes open. You're just doing, you know, looking around like, all right, what is this? But you could tell that guys were kind of done listening to Coach Wanstat. You know, that, 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 those guys were just kind of done, and that's what happens when most coaches move on. And I figured that out as I got older. Well, when Coach Jerron came in, everybody bought right in. He was that kind of guy. He's a leader of men. Uh, just We respected the heck out of him. He had a very good coaching staff. So that transition from him to Lovey really didn't have to change that much. All it did is got stronger because Jerry Angelo brought better guys in the locker room that fit more into our culture with the leaders of Olin Krutz and, and Brian Urlacher were kind of the two guys in there that everybody followed. And it just made it so easy when you have Brian Urlacher, who's the most humble superstar I've ever been around. And you had Olin Krutz, who's one of the best, if not the best leader I've ever been around. 
And the culture that we had with Lovey, he allowed us to police ourselves. And I think we all took respect in that. And um, it was just a fun place to be. We worked hard. We played hard. And uh, Lovey did a great job of building a great culture there. At what point did you feel you had earned respect yourself as a leader in the locker room being a long snapper? Like how long did it take you to really feel like you had earned that respect from the teammates? I, I, that was my thing as I always wanted to earn my teammates respect. That's you, you should, everybody should want to do that daily. That's just the way it should be. Do your job, right. You know, speak up when you get older and you, and you have something to say that's valuable. But the one thing I did that I think helped me a lot was like, you know, I played O-line, started O-line in college. I came into the pros, was kind of like a practice squad alignment while I long snapped. So I was in O-line meetings. So I went to O-line meetings for 13 of my 16 years and uh, was always out there for walkthroughs. As I got older, I would line up as like the Mike linebacker and walkthroughs. That's kind of the guy that could help, you know, they'd show us cards and I would help line guys up. I watched video of our opponents to make sure I could help do that. So I just tried to do everything right every day. And I think that just helped um, get my teammates respect. That's just what I want to do is make sure they respected me and, and, and saw that I was working hard and cared. How did you maintain longevity during your career? One is being a long snapper. You'll take as many hits, oh, yeah. which, is, <laughs> which is great. Um, but then the rules changed as well. Remember, they used to be able to line up head up over you and do a double push with a big, like we would do it with Big Cat Williams and Brian Urlacher pushing him right over the long snapper. So that was hard. So I was a lot bigger when I was younger. And then they changed that rule that helped my neck a lot. And then I just got healthier. As you get older, you're seeing all these athletes now eat so much cleaner, eat better, uh, take care of their body, train better. And that's probably the biggest thing I did do is my wife helped me with that. She has a uh, healthy food blog and she's just, she's, you don't call her health nut. It's just like a lifestyle nut, just, just changing your lifestyle to be better and cleaner. Um, and we did that and that helped me from, to be able to, you know, call it quits when I was 39 years old. And it, it, it really started probably when I was 31, 32. And that helped a whole ton. Yeah. So going back to those rules before they um, had the rule of putting someone over that of the long snapper, did you ever have an Oh shit moment pre-snap because of anyone you saw in front of you, or if there was just, <laughs> you felt like it was going to be blocked or if you just knew there was like a uh, miscommunication on timing, was there ever that moment? Cause you didn't really, I don't think ever you say you did once, but botch a snap. I did. You say you did once. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But how many times did you ever really have that? Oh shit moment with that 10 second well, period between coming from the, the huddle to the, to the ball. Well, not during that time. Cause you just, we being in Chicago long enough, the weather and all that stuff, it still sucked, but I always felt like I was prepared for it, but I can change the word. Oh shit. To Oh spit. So we're playing against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Warren Sapp is lined up over me and he always played with just a little bit of chew in. So I think it was maybe our second or third field goal. And he knew our cadence. It would be like hot, right, hot, right, set. And as soon as I hear the word set, I'd snap the ball. Well, I hear this hot, right. And I hear this, he's pulling up this giant loogie. And I'm like, that's somebody about to spit on me. And right before the set call, he spits all over my hand. Oh this is when I was younger. Yeah, this is probably my third or fourth year. All over my hand. Fortunately, the snap's good. We make the kick. But I remember it's another NFL moment. Like, oh, my God, Warren Sapp just spit on my hand. How cool is that? And it had little flecks of his dip all over my hand when I'm walking off the field. Like, all right, we just, you know, I was all excited. We made the field goal a successful snap. But, yep, Warren Sapp just brought one up from deep and just went all over my left hand. <laughs>
Who was the hardest person you had to block and who was your favorite guy to go up against? Gilbert Brown was an absolute beast up in Green Bay on field goals. I mean, he's, you know, the grave digger. That guy was just powerful, big, low. He was very, very hard. Um, there's a couple guys I enjoyed going against. It was uh, Willie Young, who became a bear. Mm-hmm. He, he, was a, he was a terror. He was uh, played for Detroit. And he is the, there's a, <laughs> there's a, the week before we play them, there's a – I don't know if we're on Zoom, but he used to line up over the long snapper and, like, dance around and then wait to this and just try to run you over. And now the week before we played him, he's, he's, there's a, one of him, like, doing a flexing thing right before the snap and then goes to the snapper and hits him. So I remember running out there, and I kind of knew him because we had trained with the same trainer before. And I run out there, and I'm like, "Well, you're not going to flex on me, are you?" And he just starts laughing. He's like, "That's all we talked about all week was that dumb flex thing you did." He's like, "Oh, trust me, I caught a bunch of shit from my teammates for doing it." But he was fun, but he was hard, man. That was one that, you know, you have to snap, protect, and cover. Him, I worried more about protection than I did the snap, and he was difficult, but he was fun. We would laugh, and but he would try to run me over, and um, but it was like you know, two brothers going at it, or two friends going at it, and nobody got hurt. And thank God, I never. Gave up a block punt or had a bad snap with him over me. So he was fun. He was a lot of fun. Who was the toughest returner that you ever had to cover or try to tackle that wasn't named Devin Hester? Ooh, that's a good question. Because we used to, Dave Tobe, we also had a point system um, that made us compete against each other in special teams rooms. So if you had block points, tackle points, um, miss tackle, you get minus stuff. Well, when we play the toughest returners, he would always put up swarm points. So that meant everybody had to get to him and at least touch him. If you touched him, you got a point. So there were a few guys we did that against, and now I'm drawing a blank who we would have done that. Um, I know earlier in my career, Dante Hall, but that was before Dave Tobe. We played them once. Well, Deion Sanders, I got to tackle Deion Sanders. That's one of no my shit. highlights in the NFL. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, see, against Dallas, me and Mike Brown are running down. This is back when I was younger and could run. And, uh, you know, Dion didn't like to get hit or anything. So we're, we're out in front and he just kind of slides down right in front of us. And I landed on him first. And that was another moment where I like touched him. I'm like, Oh my God, that's Dion Sanders. <laughs> and I was like, I just tackled Dion Sanders. It's considered a tackle. I guess it's not a form tackle or anything like that, but it goes in the stats as, you know, one next to my name tackle. And it was Dion Sanders, but I can't think of any other ones that we always played. Sorry about that. I can't think of anybody offhand oh, that was the swarm points, but, uh, Hmm. Yeah, I think it's just because we had Devin Hester. Nobody really scared us. <laughs> what did you prefer doing in a snapping situation, a field goal or a punt? And was the technique um, a little different? Field goal. Field, oh, yeah, it's good. Uh, field goal for me was easier. Um, some reason I just had a natural ability of being able to get the laces and the, the consistent speed to be able to get the laces forward. Plus, it was only eight yards. And then Brad Maynard, I mean, all my holders that I had, uh, Adam Podlish as well and Brad Maynard were so good. So if I missed a little bit, they made it look good. And uh, we worked so hard at it that um, it just kind of became easy. And then especially when they changed the rules, it became a lot easier because it couldn't line up and hit you. Um, the punt to me was just more difficult, especially being in Chicago where the wind and weather was. I hated wind. Um, my, my hotel room in Chicago overlooked Soldier Field. We used to be at the old Chicago Hilton Towers. And as I got older, I got a better room and it overlooked Soldier Field. And I remember every morning getting up and looking out the window and be like, oh, no, the flags are moving hard today. This isn't going to be fun. <laughs> then if you saw the flags just kind of laying limp, you're like, all right, that's not going to be too bad of a day. But uh, field goal for sure was, was a, lot, a lot, lot easier for me. 
What was your favorite Packer game that you played in? Mm. Uh, that's there's a lot, but I got to say the one December twenty fifth, two thousand five. It was the day after my daughter was born. So she was born on Christmas Eve. My wife was supposed to be due a week later, and we had the family at the house. And my wife is sitting on one of those exercise balls with you know the big belly, and she looks over at me and she's like, "Um, I think I'm going into labor." And I'm like, "Oh man, we got I got the Packers tomorrow." <laughs> so luckily, it's only a three hour ride. But I mean, obviously, it's my daughter's more important. But also, I'm thinking like, "What do I do?" Because there's not there's no backup long snapper on the roster. And my wife and I had kind of talked about it and she like willed herself. She's like, I will not be pregnant around the game. Don't worry. And I'm like, uh, this is, I mean, I won't be uh, giving birth around the, the uh, time of the game. So we look at each other and this was about two o'clock in the afternoon. So I call our head trainer, Tim Brame. I'm like, Tim, Tamara's going into labor. You know, what do I do? Um, I'm going to the hospital with her. Hopefully she can pop this kid out and I can get up to Green Bay because I was supposed to be going going to Hallis Hall to get on the bus because we, we used to take buses up there instead of flying because it was easier because we stayed in Appleton. And he's like, listen, go to the hospital, make sure this kid comes out before game time and we'll have one of our team doctors drive you up there before the game. Um, so luckily my daughter was born, I think at 8.35. I got zero sleep. I left the next morning at, I think we had a 3.25 game. Maybe that's what, what it was. Uh, left the next morning at like nine in the morning and got up there to the locker room before the team did. I got about 15 minutes to sleep on the training table and we played the game and won, uh, which was awesome. And I think we won, did we win the division that game? No, we had already, maybe we won the division that game too. I can't remember, but uh, that was, that was probably my greatest Packers moment just because all that was rolled into one. And then, you know, another one, 2006, when we can't went up there and beat them 26, nothing. And that's when we we're like, all right, guys, all this talk during training camp, we thought we were good. We are good. Um, another Brian Robinson blocking the field goal in 1999. Um, you know, the game you talked about September 27, 2010, when I broke the uh, McMichael's record, that was a Packers game. So I have a lot of good ones and a lot of fond memories, and that was fun. Those were, those were good times. Were you um, – I don't want to say fearful, but who was a bigger threat is the way I'll put it. Aaron Rodgers-led mm -hmm. Packer teams or Brett Favre-led Packer mm. teams? Aaron Rodgers, because early on, Lovey Smith had Brett Favre's number. He couldn't figure out that cover, too. And then Erlacher, you know, roamed that middle. And we picked him off quite a bit. So I, I would say Aaron Rodgers. That guy, they're both special. They're both Hall of Famers. They're both, they're both great. But Aaron Rodgers had our number, I think, more than Brett Favre. Brett Favre with the cover two defense and the, the shell we played of allowing him to kind of dink and dunk. Guys were able to break on the ball and make more plays. And uh, I think also we were a little younger, a little more agile back then with those guys back there in the back with Lance Briggs and Charles Tillman. And, and um, so, yeah, my mind would be Aaron Rodgers was tougher. So you mentioned um, you were talking about field goal and punt, and you mentioned the Warren Sepp and other guys that you went up against. Are there any memorable conversations that you had pre-field goal or pre-punt with the opposition? Like you, you mentioned the Willie Young – one but mm -hmm. when I was in high school at least I just remember a couple games where you could tell the score was getting out of hand and you would just get really chippy at the field goal and everyone would start jaw jacking it didn't yeah. matter like we're just here for a field goal like nobody sure. really wants to bang heads here but we're all right. just going to chirp at each other what about you no I mean I wouldn't really listen to him but there is one moment uh, Ryan Wet Knight was a former Bears tight end who went to Green Bay that's another Green Bay Packers story so he's lining up head over me on the punts and he's the guy that I have to block all game. And he knows our calls, knew all of our calls. 
So like if we call it, this is how easy football is, not, well, part, this is how easy punt team is. If you call red, that means the center's going right. If you call blue, that means the center's going left. So we went in the game and I had talked to the personal protector. I forgot who it was, but I was like, listen, if he, if he starts calling out our calls and they start rushing towards our calls, we're going to have to switch up. You know, red might be left, blue might be right. So just to mess with them. So we went red. I think I slid right and they ran a rush and luckily I picked it up and I get out there the next time. And I told the PP, I was like, go ahead and call it early. Call like call blue early, whatever. He's like blue. And then Brian wet night starts calling out what they're going to do. I go, Maybe I'm not going left, Ryan. He goes, no, 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 you're, you're going. And then he started double thinking. Well, then I went right when he called blue and we picked up the twist and the rush and all that stuff. He's like, oh, man. All right, which way are you like? And he couldn't figure out which way we were going to go. So that's a conversation that happened within the game, like during the snap and stuff like that it was fun. But um, yeah, it's, it's just never fun going against a buddy either, especially when they know your calls. So I want to ask you about the uh, Super Bowl season and specifically mm-hmm. what was the what was the vibe coming into camp with the team? What was the expectation? And obviously the Bears had that defense at the time, but like what was the realistic expectation for that season? Was it Super Bowl or bust or was it yes. just a yes? Yes, yes. I mean, so that 05 season, we knew we were coming into our own. We knew those young guys were getting pretty good, the defense especially, offense we didn't play great. Um, but going into that training camp, there was just talk of like Super Bowl, Super Bowl, and Lovey started it. You know, he would say, "Hey, listen, guys, this is a this is a Super Bowl winning team. This is a we are good enough. We are ready now. Let's go." So we started believing it, and and it's just started cultivating and all that. And we had a left guard, Reuben Brown, uh, who came over from the Buffalo Bills, and he started the mantra, "You know, we're going to Space Mountain." You guys remember Rick uh, Rick Flair and all his? <laughs> so he called the Super. Bowl basically Space Mountain and he would always do that that saying and so it was just like hey we're going to Space Mountain we're going to Space Mountain we're going to the Super Bowl we're going to the Super Bowl and it just we believed it we get on the buses after games we'd win and be like all right guys that's another one we're going to the Super Bowl and the next thing you know we're down in Miami and we're at the Super Bowl but it was just something that we were confident in ourselves but also knew to work hard um that it's just not given to you we knew we had the roster and the talent but we also would talk amongst ourselves, like, hey, we're going to the Super Bowl. We're going to go to the Super Bowl. And unfortunately, we went to the Super Bowl, but we should have said more, we're going to win the Super Bowl. So that kind of leads me to my next question about a playoff moment, which is the 2010 NFC Championship. And that was kind of like mm-hmm. the last chance at, you know, a Super Bowl within with that team. What do you think kind of went wrong after that? Because there were offensive pieces that came with, you know, later on, or mm-hmm. then and later on with Jay Cutler, Brandon Marshall, um, Matt Forte, all those guys were kind of coming into their own. So what do you think happened after that? Um, I think after that, we got rid of Olin Cruz, which I thought was unfortunate and dumb. Um, you know, so you lost a big leader in that regard. And then just it, that kind of fractalized, not fra- it just, the we lost a lot of leadership. Let's put it that way. And guys, a little bit more of this, when I'm doing that is thumbs to myself, a little bit more of me stuff than team stuff. But then we got it going again in 2012, and unfortunately, uh, we well, we started out seven and one, and then ended up ten mm-hmm. and six, and Levy gets fired. But uh, I think that was probably one of the biggest. It was a bad decision to let Olin Cruz go. They should have paid him. I think whatever the X amount of dollars they were short on, they should have given the money and kept it there. Um, but you started to get some of the guys who they they weren't bad guys, they weren't bad teammates, but it just the the the, the closest of the locker room just kind of split up a little bit. It wasn't as tight as it had been in the few, uh, past. Did you ever consider leaving the Bears or did you want to be a Bear for life? 
I wanted to be a bear for life. So I always told my agent, um, and I got lucky being a long snapper and all these guys will sign five-year contracts, five-year contract extensions. And when you do that, you can maximize your signing bonus because it could be prorated per year. And for a long snapper, that's not a whole lot of money on the cap, but it's a whole lot of money in, your, in, for, in, 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 in everyday terms. Um, so what I always told my agent, I said, listen, just try to get me to be one of the top four to five paid long snappers in the league. I'm not going for the biggest bonus. I don't want to, I don't need the biggest bonus this year. I just want longevity. And so there were a couple of years, two, maybe two of the contracts I could have tried to go for more and maybe they just would have said no and I would have gone somewhere else. But what was great is they came to me every time and said, listen, we want to get a deal done. But I think they knew that I wasn't going to try to go get the highest long snapper signing bonus. They knew I was going to say, hey, give me where I should be in the top five, you know, paid long snappers in the league. Do you think that's something that's undervalued in sports now and is missing with players not staying with one team for their careers? Or do you respect when they're just trying to maximize the amount of money they can get on the open market? That, that's, a, that's a great question. I think it's all personal. You know what I mean? If there's an opportunity to go break the bank and, and get just true general, generation skipping wealth, um, I think you got to do that. I mean, this, the earning potential now especially is, is so high. But if you're a guy like me or, or you know, in a situation where it's not going to break the bank, you're not going to break the bank, but you can still stay at that same place. I think it's smart to, um, I, you know, I've adopted Chicago. Chicago's, I call it my hometown now. I've been in Chicago longer than I ever was in Atlanta. Um, I love the people here, but it's, it's, it's a hard question to answer. But me, with me in my position, I think I did the right thing. And especially where we stood with the signing bonus money and where I was, because my wife and I talked about it. If you got to move, what are moving costs? You know, all that kind of stuff. You know, you got to think about packing up the home or rebuying a home or selling your home for a loss or trying to rent here, do that. So, uh, you know, that, that went into the analysis as well. But that's a good question. I just think it depends on your situation. And then if there's a chance just to make that just killer cash, you got to go get it. How did you get your introduction to 670 to score and everything once you'd retired fully? All right. So, um, my last year or last year and a half, I did the, uh, the Bears All Access, uh, excuse me, Bears All Access show with Zach Zaidman. Uh, I think it's a Thursday night show that comes on every week on the score. Um, so that kind of got me introduced to Mitch Rosen, who's the station boss. And I guess he liked, what, liked how I sounded. And when I retired, I thought I was going to spend, my wife and I talked about, let's spend six months, eight months. Let's go live somewhere fun. Let's go like to Australia, just rent some little place, something like that with my daughter. She's before. So we were, we were thinking about just, just checking out for a little while and then re-engaging and figure out what was next. Um, but <laughs> we're actually on a road trip out to like out West going to South Dakota and all that stuff. And thinking that was kind of going to be the start of it, of all these travels we wanted to do. And I get a call from uh, Mitch Rose and he's like, um, you're on my list to possibly take Dan McNeil's spot next to Matt Spiegel. And I'm like, for real? So I was like, all right, I got to talk to an agent. So this guy, I hired an agent. I talked to him. He's like, no, he's serious. He's you're on the list. And I'm like, all right, who else is on the list? And he gave me some names. I'm like, there's no way I'll get this job. Well, those other guys said they didn't want it. So it trickled down the list to me. And he's like, Hey, would you, we got to meet, would you want this job? And I'm like, you've got to be a complete idiot to say no. <laughs> right. I mean, who, who gets, who gets a, a, I call it like a seat at the table. That's Chicago sports media. That's the second, third largest, largest media market. A nine to one slot with, you know, Matt Spiegel. And I'm like, I got, come on, let's, let's, let's talk this out. So I talked to Mitch and I'm like, I'll give it a go. And um, I said, 
you got to give me six months because I don't know if this is something I want to do because I never thought this was something I was going to do. Would I be good at it? Would I enjoy it? And as you know, I only lasted six months and I, I, I just, it wasn't for me. And I told Mitch in the beginning, like, I, I don't know if this is going to be for me. And as it went along about four and a half, five months into it, I think it was about Christmas time. We were on a little family vacation and I had just you know, had a cold beard. I'm sitting outside by myself. I'm like, listen, I, I can't do this anymore. I've got to let him know. I just, I can't bring the passion that sitting next to Matt Spiegel does. Lawrence Holmes, uh, Dan Bernstein, those guys every day, they have just a true passion about all sports, everything. And I've, I have a passion for football, um, played high school basketball, love basketball, but I could care less about talking about the Bulls on a Wednesday morning after they play the, the Trailblazers like that. But Spiegel's over there like, oh, my God, did you see that? I'm like, yeah, I saw it, but I, you know, <laughs> I don't really care that much. So I felt bad sitting in that position and having that job and not, and not bringing the passion those guys did. But it was, it was awesome. It's great to do now what I'm doing. Um, and it's an experience that there's – thousands of people that want that job and I got lucky to get it. And uh, I thank Mitch Rosen, you know, every day for that. It was a fun experience, but I'm glad I'm not doing it anymore every day. <laughs> not telling you guys not to do it, but if you have the passion <laughs> for sports, seriously, if you have, it is awesome. It is a dream job. It is, it is super fun. Um, you know, you get to work, I got to work with two great producers and it was just, it was fun to meet those guys and, and get friendships, but I just couldn't bring that passion that these guys do. And obviously you guys do doing what you're doing now which is super cool. And that's one reason why I want to talk to you guys. Thank you. Um, yeah. A question I have for you is in your playing career and in your media career, you've been immersed as a Chicago bear and have been a representative of the, you know, the franchise and being a former player mm -hmm. of the franchise. What does being a Chicago bear mean to you? Hmm. Um, you know, everybody goes back to being the charter franchise to, you know, George Hallis, you know, being the first franchise in the NFL, it's, you know, I grew up in Atlanta and the Atlanta Falcons were not good. <laughs> so I tried to adopt other teams. Like I was a Joe Montana fan. And then I was 10 years old, 1985, when the, those bears came along and every, I was like, Oh my God, these, two, these guys are awesome. You know, like all these, they're all characters. I love them. Um, so I kind of fell in love with, excuse me, with the bears when I was around 10 years old and followed them on since, and then to get drafted to them and then to really get immersed into the history of the bears and know all the great players before, uh, what the, what what the Bears have meant to the NFL, um, and just to say I was a part of it, and then be able to say I was a part of it for 16 years is, is beyond a dream come true. It was just something that's uh, very cool, and I and I love telling people that you know I don't I, I'm going to phrase this the right way. I love telling people I played for the Bears, but not bragging if that makes sense. I'm proud to say I played for the Bears within the NFL over the other franchises. So speaking of the Bears today, <clears throat> what's your current read on them? Offensively, defensively, special teams, give it all. What's their five and yeah, one? All right. Well, <laughs> I think we all see the same thing, right? And I think even Matt Nagy talks about it, is that the defense is awesome. They, they started out good, and they had the potential to be awesome, and they're getting there. I mean, they, you know, last week was, was pretty strong performance by everybody from the D-line linebackers and, and the secondary. But the offense is the problem. You know, that's just they – they don't have it. And, and, and part of the reason is Olin Cruz and I talk about it all the time. And he's brought it up numerous times that they just don't have the talent. If you look at the big, the big pie of cap space, it all is on the defensive side, right? So that offensive side just doesn't have the high paid guys. And that's, that's part of it. They haven't invested in the odd offense. These guys are trying hard, but that's just who they are. Like Charles Leno is, you know, is ranked, I think the 19th or 20th tackle in the NFL. That's what he is. Bobby Massey's probably the same for the right side. That whole line is just right there in the middle. 
They have one great player in Allen Robinson. I think um, David Montgomery is a pretty good running back in that offense. I think he, I, I, you know, he's very good at breaking tackles and all that. I like him. But, you know, Anthony Miller, I was reading on Twitter today, he's upset at the fans because they're all over him. But he's a guy they traded up to to get as a second-round you know, second pick, and he, he can't be – he's just not consistent. So just they're not consistent. The O-line play is not consistent. Um, they missed on Mitch Trubisky, and Nick Foles is doing an okay job. But that's – again, that's who he is. He's a middle-of-the-pack quarterback. They just don't have any great players over there to, to make uh, to be difference makers. And then special teams wise, I, Chris Tabor was my assistant for many years in Chicago under Dave Tobe. I have a lot of respect for him. I know how he teaches those guys. I know what's being taught and they're playing pretty well. You know, Cordero Patterson's the best kick returner in the NFL has been for a few years. Um, it hurts. They don't have Tariq Cohen as a punt returner. They need to find one there, but they've been very consistent, you know, in covering kicks and, and Pat O'Donnell's doing a great job and, Cairo Santos is the uh, what do we win the uh, special teams player of the week this week for that 55 yard field goal, which is awesome. Which is great to see because kickers they need that confidence. Like I said, you start building your resume by more and more kicks you make, and then you just feel more confident. And I think he's there right now. So where do you see this team going by the end of the season? Do you see them being a real contender, or do you think that no. they're going to fall short? I, right now, the way I see it, they're a playoff team, and then they fall short. You know, it kind of reminds me of the 05 season. We had a great defense. The offense wasn't there yet. You know, we had a rookie quarterback and uh, Kyle Lurton leading us through most of the season. And, you know, we got to the playoffs and we found out, hey, our offense wasn't good enough and our defense can only take you so far. You need all you need all three phases, but you definitely need the offense to raise it up a little bit. And right now I don't see that happening, but you never know. Maybe they start clicking. Maybe some of these playmakers, uh, you know, Mooney and the other guys in Cole Komet start raising their play and becoming, you know, stars and making a difference during the games. Fast Why forwarding you know? to to the offseason, <clears throat> where do you see the Bears' first priorities being? Do you see it as tackle? Um, obviously, the Mitch project is over and they're going to have to mm -hmm. find a successor. So a quarterback in the first couple of rounds. Um, weapons, like you've just said, they don't have the pure talent. Where do you see them attacking first in the draft? First three rounds, free agency, you name it. I would like to see offensive line. I just, I, we never, you know, we had Olin Cruz we paid, which is great, but we never gave other guys the big, well, we take that back. We got John, the year we went to the Super Bowl, we went out and paid for John Tate. We got him, right? Fred Miller we paid for, paid for Ruben Brown. You got Olin Cruz and Roberto Garza, and they invested in the offensive line. That helped us be able to run the ball, and it helped us, you know, have a nice run during those times. So, I would like to see the O-line get solidified, you know, especially now with the, the game too, it's changed back then. We ran the ball more. Now you're passing as much as you are, especially with Matt Nagy. You need that protection up front for those quarterbacks to, to read and dissect the information. So that would be my number one thing. Um, if there's a quarterback in the late first round, second round, hopefully they're picking late that you feel has a tremendous upside that slides down there. You might have to go get them. But one thing that I'm a little upset at Ryan Pace is when he came in, he said he's going to draft a quarterback every year, right? No matter what you, and he hadn't done it. He has nobody he's developed. We still have Tyler Bray. who Well, he protects him. Tyler Bray every week <laughs> in, in hope that he might turn into something good. Well, he's just not. And I don't understand it. I don't understand how he still has him. Why hasn't he spent a sixth or seventh or fifth round pick on a quarterback to see if, you know, you can find something out there. I don't know if there is one, but, you know, do what you said you were going to do. What would you grade Ryan Pace's job leading mm -hmm. this Bears front office over his tenure? Uh, a B. You know, 2018 was fun. Uh, last year, they fell behind, obviously, going, I wouldn't call it, what they go, eight and eight or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, played a Minnesota team that didn't play in their players. But, um, and then right now, they're, they're five and one. So he's doing an okay job, but 
I would just give them a B. A simple answer is a B because they're winning, but they're not, you know, they're not, uh, they're not, they're not making a difference in the playoffs yet. Do you see them making any moves this season to try to get themselves over a hump, whether it's um, like today, the Bills just released Quentin yeah. Spain, the left guard, see them going after someone like that, or maybe trading Mitch. I don't know. I'm just speaking off the top of my yeah. head. Do you, do yeah. you see them making any move? I mean, if you trade Mitch, you've got to get something high. You know what I mean? I don't know if he's got the value right now to get that. So um, maybe I don't know how you're going to do that because I wouldn't I wouldn't have a problem if they traded him. But you got to I want something back that's, you know, like a third rounder. Um, I need something, you know, up there. I mean, being the number over number two overall pick in the draft. And then the guy from Buffalo, I want to do some more research on him because he looks interesting. I was scrolling through Twitter today trying to read up on him a little bit. But if they feel that uncomfortable with that left guard position, you've got to go get somebody. You've got to. I mean, you can't go through the season trying to rotate two bad guys and see if you can find a hot one during the week. So um, I would have not have a problem with that at all. And the final question I have, um, one of the hottest topics for all of Bears, is the Allen Robinson situation. Do you think it would be in the Bears' best interest to move on midseason or wait till the end of this year to get something figured out? Because it really seems like both parties are not on the same page on coming back together. Seems there's been a disconnect on the numbers on the contract extension. Do you think it would be best for the Bears to move on midseason, try to maybe trade them to someone that might want them, or is being in this five and one position kind of strapping them down and not really allowing them to do that? Because then it it kind of shows that they're not really full intent and purposes trying to contend. Yeah, I think you you nailed it right there. I think you answered your question with where they are right now. If they were two and three or one and one and four or something like that, that um, I would say, okay, maybe you do, and it's time. You know, you you know, Mitch wasn't the right guy. Allen Robinson might be able to you know save some money by not signing him for the future. Um, but that's a tough one. I think it's just unfortunate. I would love to know the numbers, how far apart they are. You know what I mean? Like the Olin Crude situation. I know they were pretty close, but they just they stuck by their guns, so we're not signing them. Um, but uh, that's a tough one. I think right now being five and one, you, you got to keep him. He's your best player. I mean, he, he's their offense. So hopefully they can get something done. He deserves every penny he gets because he's that good. He's, he's better than I thought he would be. I mean, maybe coming from Jacksonville, I didn't know much about him. And coming off the ACL, you didn't know much about him that injured year. But um, that, that's a good question. But right now, five and one, it's tough to get rid of him. You can't do anything. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, we, we really appreciate it, and we have a lot of listeners who are Bears fans, so we know they're going to love it, and they're going to love the stories. Um, Jack, do you want to close this thing out? Of course, guys. Uh, you can find our podcast on all platforms, Spotify, Apple. We're also on YouTube. Uh, you know the drills. Not the same time, same place. We will see you guys later.